Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and this is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. We have converts as guests. We have authors and writers. We have architects, musicians, people involved in social work and politics. We're exploring the abundance of activity, the abundance of thought and philosophy and art and music in the richness of the Catholic Church for the last 2,000 years. The Church founded by Jesus Christ on the rock, which is Peter. Today we're talking about Catholic literature and Catholic writers. I'm here in South Carolina in the Deep South and the Bible Belt, and we're going to be talking about a Southern Catholic writer. A few weeks ago we were talking about Flannery O'Connor. Today we're going to be talking about Walker Percy, the novelist from Louisiana. And my special guest today is also a writer and a specialist in Walker Percy and my friend John Zmirak. John, welcome to More Christianity. Thanks for having me on, Father. John, before we get started, tell our listeners a little bit about some of your writing work. Well, my, my work is in part inspired by the style of Walker Percy, who always used humor to make philosophical points. And I found that people don't lose their faith by reading reasoned arguments by Richard Dawkins, or supposedly reasoned arguments. They don't lose their faith by reading Rousseau or even by sitting down with John Calvin and deciding they're Calvinists, typically. People drift out of the church because of what C.S. Lewis called flippancy. Mm-hmm. People mocking sacred things and dragging them down and, and basically shaming you out of wanting to be associated with other Catholics and wanting to be associated with the church. And then, maybe at a third level, you're, you're embarrassed about being associated with the church's teachings and finally with Christ. But it all starts with making you feel ridiculous for being the kind of person who associates with other Catholics, who goes to churches, and who follows the church's teaching. So what I decided to do was to invert the process, Mm -hmm. uh, to make people laugh at the attacks on the church, make people laugh at secularism, laugh at the new atheists, laugh at anti-Catholicism, and sort of convey the church's teaching to them while they're happy, having fun, in a good mood. And again, that's another principle of persuasion. If you can get people laughing their barriers come down, their suspicion comes down, they're kind of on your side. It's like giving somebody two drinks before getting them to sign a business contract. Um, So I I like to think of the humor in my books as those two drinks before getting the landlord to let me have even more beagles in the apartment. Your latest book, it's uh, Bad Catholic's Guide to the Catechism, is that right? That's right, yeah. And it's it's the latest in a series of Bad Catholic's Guides. People ask me, well, why do you call yourself a bad Catholic? And and to that I respond, what kind of person describes himself as a good Catholic? You typically think of some sort of corrupt politician. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so John, you're using humor to communicate the Catholic faith. You're in a good tradition. G.K. Chesterton, of course, and and C.S. Lewis and others, myself too, if I might join the club, are are trying to use uh, humor and standing things upside down a bit uh, to show people that Catholicism is actually joyful and um, that it's smart, well-informed, and and also that people who are good writers and and, and well-educated people can be Catholics. And, And you're a good example of that. Your latest book, Bad Catholics Guide to the Catechism, Yes, I have a series of bad Catholics books, and the latest one goes through the key points in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and presents them accurately, but 
in a humorous way. What it is, you remember the old question and answer catechisms that many Catholics grew up with, the Baltimore Catechism. Well, well what I have is I have questions asked by a snarky atheist and smart answers given by a well-informed Catholic. So it's more like a debate than it is like an ordinary catechism. And I, I try to cover all the main objections that are raised to the key aspects of the Catholic faith, and I try to do it in a way that gets people laughing. I've, I've seen the reviewer at first thing said it made him burst out laughing on the subway, which is a little embarrassing. <laughs> the reason I call it bad Catholics is, first of all, to make it less intimidating, you know, so that people might be fallen away or drifted or have an imperfect relationship to the church. We'll feel comfortable picking it up. But there's a deeper reason. The typical person who calls himself a good Catholic, how many sentences begin? I'm a good Catholic. The next word is invariably, but. But I run a chain of abortion clinics. But I own a strip joint. But I'm a politician who supports gay marriage. It's never sincere. It's never real. Whereas when people sort of ruefully admit to being bad Catholics, it's often by way of admitting that the standards the church sets are high, and they strive and fail to meet them, and they go to confession and pick up and try again. Mother Teresa went to confession once a week, she said, because she needed to. Mm -hmm. That level of humility, and remember, humility is just honesty. It's not self-abasement, it's honesty. That kind of humility ought to make pretty much anyone regard himself as a bad Catholic, or not as good a Catholic as they ought to be. If you think you, you're every bit as good a Catholic as you ought to be, then you're a lot like the Pharisee in the temple, praising himself instead of praying. I'm going to take a little break here and remind our listeners that you're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today is John Smirak. We're talking about his writing and his books right now. We're going to go on and talk about the writer Walker Percy in a few minutes. John is the author of The Bad Catholic's Guide to Good Living, The Bad Catholic's Guide to Wine, Whiskey, and Song, which I'm reading at the moment and learning an awful lot about. And uh, The Bad Catholic's Guide to the Seven Deadly Sins, and now his latest, The Bad Catholic's Guide to the Catechism. You can find all these books over at his website, badcatholics.com, where he also maintains a very funny and uh, excellent blog. John Smirak, you've also written a graphic novel and some screenplays. Well, I, I wrote a short story imagining that the Grand Inquisitor section of the Brothers Karamazov, where Christ comes back to Earth and is mm-hmm. arrested by the, by the Pope, and the, the, he's a bad Pope, obviously, doesn't want Christ to preach his real message on the Earth, and basically suggests that there's a whole system for tricking people because they can't face real Christianity. It was intention, originally an anti-Catholic story. I sort of turned it on its head and imagined the election of a, an Orthodox Pope a strong, solid, orthodox, traditional pope after a rather weak one, and that pope being arrested and taken to prison by a liberal cardinal who doesn't want him to accept the throne because he doesn't want the real Catholic faith to be taught. And I sort of investigate the reasons why liberal theologians and liberal cardinals and bishops might not want the orthodox faith to be preached. I basically suggest that they think it's too much for people, that people will fail to live up to it, and then go to hell. Whereas if you give them a watered-down version, a sort of dumbed-down version of the gospel, if that's all they know about, then that's all they're culpable for. So I suggest that modernist Catholicism might be a ploy to get people into heaven by diminishing their culpability. Did you make sure that it was required reading in the Sistine Chapel last month? And, and... 
did you? I did get a few copies to Rome. The book is called The Grand Inquisitor, and I wrote it as a verse play, and then we illustrated it, had it done as a kind of gripping graphic novel with, with really elaborate sort of lurid drawings that look like they might be off a heavy metal album covers. Perfect book to give your skeptical teenage son. Yeah, I'm afraid I looked at it, and the drawings reminded me of those Chick Tracks. Have you ever seen those? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, I yeah, thought... Jack Chick Tracks. They're, those are hilarious. So it's kind of like John Zmirak's version of Chick Tracks, right? Well, yeah, turning them on their head, you know. Um, so again, I, I try to take aspects of the contemporary culture that are generally seen as hostile to the church, like religious humor books. When you look at the Amazon listing of religious humor books, like the first nine are snarky books by atheists, and number ten is me. Right. For graphic novels with lurid illustrations or intrigue stories about the Vatican, well, then there's you know Dan Brown's stories. So what I'm trying to do is take these genres that are typically used against the faith and turn them on their heads. Fantastic. I'm talking today to John Zmirak. We're really here to talk about Walker Percy. Walker Percy, American Catholic Southern writer. He's born in 1916, died in 1990, so relatively a recent contributor to American culture. Tell us a little bit more about his background, John. I think the most important thing to know about Percy is that he comes from an aristocratic Southern family of men who suffer from clinical depression. Four generations, I believe, of his, of his forebearers, the men died by suicide. Mm-hmm. And even his mother committed suicide. He had definitely inherited the tendency to clinical depression. He studied medicine and went to Columbia Law School, Medical School and was going to practice as a physician. When he caught tuberculosis from cutting up cadavers, which was part of his training, and back then tuberculosis was not yet curable. Uh, my uncle died of it. So he went to a sanitarium to re- recover his health. And there he switched his reading to literature and philosophy. He read a lot of Kierkegaard. He read a lot of Dostoevsky. He read a lot of linguistics. He read Noam Chomsky. And he also read, most importantly, John Paul Sartre. And these things sort of intermarried in his head. And he kind of came to a realization that Sartre presented the modern tragic condition of man, that we are free, but we have no purpose. We, mm-hmm. we, our lives are absurd. And the existentialists encourage people to just embrace this. Uh, Camus is, wrote a book called Living Absurd. But Percy wasn't satisfied with that, particularly since he struggled with clinical depression and had very strong reasons to try to find purpose in his life. And he found it in the Catholic faith and started to try to write fiction. He saw that philosophical ideas are best conveyed in a good piece of narrative literature. He saw that in Camus, he saw it in Sartre, he saw it in Dostoevsky, he saw it in Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. So he started writing novels, and he started corresponding with famous Catholic writers like Alan Tate and Carolyn Gordon. Mm -hmm. And they were kind enough to critique his works, and he burned his first novel. His second novel was never published and is still sitting in the archives, at Chapel Hill, and I would love to get my hands on it. His third novel was The Moviegoer. Right. And it's a novel about a young man who is caught up in the inauthenticity, the falsity of modern life. And he's actually kind of satisfied with his life of going to lots of movies, having short-term affairs with secretaries, making a modest living. He's a very good description of what we would now call a postmodern man. Mm -hmm. But he has this itch 
this hunger for found meaning in his life, and he calls it the search. And the novel sort of follows Kierkegaard's scheme of how we go from inauthenticity to authenticity, how we go from just living a shallow life of the senses, perhaps to a more ethical life based on secular reason and morality. But then we get to the point where we have to make the leap of faith, where if we don't make a leap in the dark to accept Christ, our lives will finally be devoid of a greater purpose. John, what you said about uh, stories actually being the way to communicate these philosophical and theological truths, that in itself is a deeply Christian concept or deeply Christian idea, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that Christianity starts with the story of Christ and the Gospels. Our Lord did not issue a bunch of syllogisms. He did not do a bunch of dialogues like Socrates. He did not uh, write a catechism and leave it on top of Mount Sinai. <laughs> he, he lived a life and he told parables. He told lots of stories. And then his story, as told by the Gospels, is what created the Church. And it was only hundreds of years later that we hammered out creeds that summed up what this story means. So let's, let's keep the priority where it is. Stories come first. History comes first, because ours is a, is a historical religion of real people. It reminds me of one of my favorite sayings of Pope Benedict XVI, where he said, the scriptures can only be interpreted in the lives of the saints. Even the scriptures themselves, which are collections of stories for the most part, uh, are also continually made alive and, and brought into reality by the lives of the saints. So, for instance, our Lord says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. And then we have a saint like St. Therese, who, who is the apostle of the way of, of spiritual childhood. And she lives it out in her life, dies at the age of 24 as virtually a little child, and so forth. Through the lives of the saints, you see particular scriptures which are kind of fleshed out and, and come true. Right, and what Percy did was, he didn't write hagiographies. He wrote stories of modern people struggling with modern issues and modern problems and mm -hmm. modern addictions and vices, and several of his main characters are are borderline alcoholics. Several of them might be diagnosable as having a sexual addiction, and some of them are explosively violent. There's something for almost everyone in Percy's novels where he's going to reach you where you are and not drag you towards the truth, but sort of show you mm -hmm. one other person going through the maze, kind of the way Dante admits at the beginning of the Inferno that he's lost in a dark wood, and there are these vices, which he incarnates, I think it's a lion and a tiger. Or a, le a leopard. Leopard, okay. And that he can't conquer, and it takes something higher than himself, the vision of Beatrice, to get him past these beasts and out of the forest. And then he has to start at the top of hell, crawl to the bottom of hell, emerge at the bottom of purgatory, trudge his way all the way up the mountain of purgatory before he can finally have a vision of heaven. I'm talking to John Smirak, blogger, author, and editor. He's my guest here on More Christianity, and I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I encourage you to follow my own blog, Standing on My Head, to go to my website, DwightLongenecker.com, to browse my books, to be in touch. We'd love to hear from you. John Smirak is here to talk about Catholic novelist Walker Percy. 
You know, John, I was at camp up in North Carolina with a wonderful family up there called the Trufant family who run a couple of camps in the mountains. Anyway, they're from Louisiana, and I was up there with a Walker Percy novel under my arm. And uh, Mrs. Trufant's mother says, oh, I see you're reading Walker Percy. Oh, I went to church with Walker Percy and his wife every week. So she actually knew them from down there in uh, that part of Louisiana, and she had some nice anecdotes to tell about them. Apparently, he was a real Southern gentleman, and as you've indicated— had a lot of suffering in his background and in his his own personal life. How do you think some of those darker elements have influenced his work? Well, I think that the question of should I commit suicide haunts several of his books. He has characters who are constantly afflicted with what a psychiatrist would call suicidal ideation. And various of his characters find ways to try to make their life meaningful or ways to distract themselves from the bad feelings and from the sense of futility. And they discover, most of them, religious faith in a very odd, unexpected, maybe even crackpot way, Mm -hmm. often in the form of meeting a woman who requires that they sacrifice to take care of the woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my dissertation on Walker Percy, which I wrote down in Baton Rouge because I went to Louisiana, spent eight years there when I did my Ph.D. working on Percy, the female characters, I think, represent the physical sacramental world, mm-hmm. uh, the world that science tries to deny or to control or to reduce to just chemistry and biology and physics. These wounded women in his novels represent that sacramental world that is under attack or that we're in denial about in the modern world. And his male characters represent, I think, modern humanity in its attempt to live out the Cartesian idea that that we are ghosts who are operating robots. We're ghosts trapped in machines. And the only important thing is the ghost. The only important thing is your intellect and your free choice. I mean, whenever you hear the phrase consenting adult, he's a consenting adult, that's usually a pretext by someone who's maybe exploiting somebody else, but that person has consented. They signed up for it. You know, She shouldn't have slept with me. She didn't want to risk getting pregnant. That's why we have abortion clinics. That is an extremely modern view. That's the view that Descartes promoted. Remember, Descartes, when he taught that there's a split, a radical split between the body and the mind, and really there's no overlap between them, he actually taught some other things. He said that animals were merely robots. Mm-hmm. They had no spirit at all. He didn't even think they felt pain, and he encouraged scientists to perform experiments on them while they were still alive to figure out how animals worked, figure out how the machine works. To him, you know, what we would consider torturing an animal, he thought of it as simply opening up a car and looking under the hood. That notion of us as robots inhabited by ghosts is what Percy's critiquing. I'm interested that you mentioned in Walker Percy's novels how very often there's a usually a vulnerable woman as well who helps to redeem this man and bring him humanity. That links back, do you think, to the influence of Dostoevsky? I'm thinking of Crime and Punishment and the hero Raskolnikov and how he, in the end, seems to be redeemed by the prostitute who actually cares for him. Um, Sonia. 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 I do think it's an influence, and I think there's something deeper going on, is that by encountering someone who is vulnerable and damaged, the character comes to realize that he's vulnerable and damaged too. Right. And he loses his sort of imperial hubristic notion that he is a godlike intellect, that he's a brilliant scientist, 
that he is a modern consumer of pleasure. And he realizes, wait, I'm a broken creature too. Mm-hmm. I'm a creature, which implies a creator. I do see that connection. I also think there's a Marian element that the uh, vulnerability and humility of Our Lady is sometimes reflected in a somewhat distorted modern way in these characters. And that in Percy's novels, the, the figure of the Virgin Mary is the antidote to the kind of satanic pride that is encouraged in the modern world. We are encouraged to think that we create our own lives, that we make ourselves, that we forge our own destinies, we can choose our sexual identity, we can choose to become a member of the opposite sex, and surgeons will duly take care of that for us. Our will is absolute. Our will is done. Well, the figure of Mary suggests, no, not my will, but thy will be done. And I think Percy's sometimes proud, sometimes deluded male characters learn experientially that they are really vulnerable and learn the value of humility and surrender to something bigger than themselves through their encounter with these women who have been damaged often by the abuse of men. John, Walker Percy's novels that we're discussing, they're grown-up books. I mean, there's nothing pornographic about it or anything, but they're adult themes, they're serious themes, and they can be a little bit hard work. They're very entertaining and always pack a powerful punch, especially at the end. What would you have to say to our listeners, therefore, who might be inclined for a lighter form of entertainment? He wrote a very light, easy-to-read, entertaining book called Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. Mm -hmm. And it takes the themes he's talking about and presents them in the format of like a psychological self-help book, question and answer, multiple choice questions, self-analysis. And it's a lot of fun. It's like a collection of quizzes from the back of Cosmopolitan magazine, but with deep philosophical and theological implications. So I would say if you want to get a starting point in Walker Percy, and and this was the first book of his that I read, get the Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. And it's not heavy, except in the themes it covers, but it's fun, it's light, it's entertaining, it's playful. It was, frankly, the inspiration for my own Bad Catholics books. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed also the comment you just made about the person finding religious faith or finding enlightenment through some quirky sort of way or some unexpected way. In talking to converts over the years, I've just found so many stories where the impetus towards conversion, it comes like a bolt out of the blue. And this is what I find so exciting and delightful about it, because it's as if our Father in Heaven sneaks up on people and says, you know, I gotcha, <laughs> when they were least expecting it. C.S. Lewis said that a young atheist can't be too careful about what books he reads, because truth might just sneak up on him in the most unexpected manner. Percy himself decided to convert to the Catholic faith because he had a college roommate who would get up every morning at dawn in order to go to early morning mass. And that witness and that testimony converted Walker Percy to the Catholic faith. What do you have to say that, to that, John, about the unexpectedness or the, uh, the quirkiness of God's providence? I love to read convert stories for that re- very reason. There was a church where Walker Percy went up and rang the doorbell in New Orleans, the Church of the Immaculate Conception, everyone calls it Jesuit, and he went up and rang the doorbell and asked for instruction in the Catholic faith, and thankfully there was a priest who gave him instruction. In his novels, one of the crazy things that happens, and this is in The Second Coming, which I also highly recommend, where a depressed character, he's tortured by whether or not God exists. So he actually creates a scientific experiment that he believes will force God to show himself or not. And uh, he goes down into a cave 
with a bunch of tranquilizers. He decides he's going to stay in the cave until he gets some sign of the existence of God. And if he's not given a sign, it means either God doesn't exist or doesn't care, so it doesn't matter. So he's down in the cave. I hate to be a spoiler, but he gets afflicted with a crippling toothache. (laughs) And the toothache, he just can't take the pain. So he has to crawl out of the cave, but he's drugged up and half-starved. He ends up falling through a side exit of the cave into a greenhouse that is inhabited by a beautiful young mentally ill woman who has escaped from an institution where she was being treated abusively. And that relationship, that very unexpected piece of providence, is the beginning of his salvation. So Percy definitely enjoys giving us these little paradoxical spins, strange turns of events that can lead to a sudden appearance of grace. They don't tend to be as violent and shocking as Flannery O'Connor's. Percy was a little bit more of a gentle ironist than Flannery O'Connor. The mentally ill woman that he meets, is it pushing it too far to say she's a kind of second Eve? She's there in this uh, unspoiled garden, has pets and so forth. Isn't she a kind of Eve figure? Yes, in a way. And, And also remember that she had been subjected to electroshock therapy at this lousy mental institution where she got put by her stepfather. And she had lost her ability to speak normally. Mm-hmm. And she rediscovers the miracle of language in conversation with this character. So while he rediscovers the importance of the flesh, of the natural world, of the sacramental, she rediscovers the logos, the word, what is uniquely human, the power of speech. So in a sense, each of them learns from the other. It's a mutual thing, and each of them is healed of the damage that they've suffered by loving the other. So it's a really beautiful metaphor for sacramental love as the means to bring us out of the prison of the self. Remember, Adam teaches giving names to all the animals. Mm-hmm. Well, he helps Eve to give names to things. Right. And that's one of Percy's central themes. The existence of language itself is a pretty good indicator of the existence of God. Mm-hmm. He notes that no animal, however intelligent, uses language in the way we do. No animal uses symbolic representation. They point to things, or they have signals, they bark, it means they want something. They don't try to convey complicated bits of meaning. The only thing on earth we know that creates a symbolic realm that seems to transcend materiality, that seems to transcend cause and effect, and suggests that we have freedom, that we're not just the side effects of of physics and chemistry, that is man, and that power is language. So Percy wrote two books on language and the mystery of language. And if Lost in the Cosmos is his easiest and most popular work, is it called um, Note in a Bottle, which is one of his books on semiotics and on language? Right. The Message in the Bottle is a collection of his philosophical essays. And it is hard going. It is the book to read once you've read his novels and you want to understand them better. I would say to start with Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. That's a very good introduction. And if you want a novel to start with, I would say The Second Coming is a very good starting point for entering the world of Walker Percy. Thanks, John. I'm talking to John Zmirak. Go and visit John's blog, which is badcatholics.com. Learn more about him and his work. Thank you for listening. And John Zmirak, thanks for being our guest. Thank you.